tonight. Peace be with you. Peace, peace. Do you want to open up your Bibles as we look at Mark chapter 8? Mark chapter 8. We're looking at Mark chapter 8, taking a little bit of a larger chunk of text this morning, in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21, as we continue our series in Mark's gospel. This is our 31st, I believe, sermon, our 31st sermon in Mark's gospel, so we are, we're making it, guys. This is, uh, this is about halfway through, so we're, we're doing it. Lord willing, we will be finished with Mark's gospel by the end of this year, taking a a 12-week break over the summer, and start Advent the last Sunday of November. But uh, between then and now, we'll keep working our way through Mark. And once you turn there, if you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, we read Mark. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. Let's listen with reverence. Let's listen with joy to the word of our God. As Mark wrote it, inspired by the Holy Spirit. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. Because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and He took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves or the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. 
And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up, take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, bless the reading and preaching of your word with the presence and power of your Holy Spirit so that we might see Christ and understand, so that our hearts might be softened and trusting toward him. We pray in his name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, the famed dog whisperer, Caesar Milan, once said that repetition creates the master. Repetition creates the master. But I'm not sure that he's read Mark's gospel. Because as we've been making our way through Mark's gospel together, one of the recurring themes that we've seen is the deep, hard-hearted misunderstanding of Jesus' very own disciples. Jesus has been teaching his disciples in parables, but they don't understand them. He's been explaining the parables to them, but they still don't get it. He's been revealing his beauty and glory through his miraculous wonders, but they don't see him. He's been communicating his grace, but their faith is weak. Their hearts are hard and they don't understand. They're spiritually dull. They're spiritually hard of hearing, spiritually blind to the point where they're missing the beauty and glory of what is sitting right in front of them. And revealing to them what is sitting right in front of them has, has also been something of a recurring theme in Mark. Ever since we, we saw Jesus calm the storm in Mark 4, 35-41, Jesus has been answering one of their questions. They asked in response to Jesus calming the storm, Who then is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? Who then is this? Well, he's been showing them. He's the great I am come in human flesh who is passing before them to reveal his glory to them. He is the God who fed Israel with manna in the wilderness in Exodus 16. He is bread come down from heaven to save and satisfy his own. He is the Redeemer, the Messiah, who has come to redeem his people and give them forgiveness and deliver them from evil and give them new hearts and a new covenant. All this and more. Jesus has been revealing to them and teaching to them in his teaching and miracles. And yet they don't see, they don't hear, they don't understand. And this pattern continues and is made very plain in our text this morning when Jesus reveals his grace and glory only to meet with blind eyes and hard hearts. And so he confronts his disciples' dullness and disbelief head on this morning. And in so doing, he confronts ours as well. And he warns us to watch out for certain dangers which, which threaten his disciples. That's kind of the big idea is Jesus warns us. He warns us to watch out for certain dangers that threaten his disciples. Our text begins with a familiar scene. It's, it's remarkably similar to what we saw back in Mark 6, 30 through 44. There we saw Jesus feed uh, 5,000 men plus however many women and children were there with only measly five loaves of bread and two fish. 
And you'll recall that what we saw there is that Jesus, in that miracle, revealed himself as the God of his people and as bread come down from heaven for them to save and to satisfy them. And what we find here is an almost identical situation. You might wonder why. It's because, as Caesar said, repetition is it's one of the best ways to, 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 to teach. It's, it's, a, it's a really good tool for teaching. Caesar's not wrong about that. Jesus is, is taking this 12 through the school of discipleship and built into the curriculum is repetition in order to drive these lessons home. And so here, Jesus is with a great crowd of about 4,000 people. And apparently, they'd been with him for about three days. Seems they were like camping out. There was a conference. Uh, Jesus was going up and, and teaching and preaching in these sessions. And, and uh, now it's been about three days. The event is drawing to a close, and he's about to send them away. But they had nothing to eat before their journey home. And this simply will not do, Jesus Says He has compassion on the crowd in their hunger because they'd been with him for three days and they had nothing to eat. Jesus is, of course, concerned with more than just our physical and practical needs, but he cares for our physical and practical, uh, practical provisions as well. You know, he's the one who taught us to pray for our daily bread, wasn't he? He cares for our practical provisions, that we have food in our bellies and clothes on our backs. And so he says, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. He doesn't want this to happen. His disciples answer with a familiar refrain, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And again here we find this feeding like in Mark 6 being done in a desolate place. That's an important detail. Because if you'll recall, Israel was fed with manna by God in a desolate wilderness in Exodus 16. Imagery here is is meant to reveal Jesus as the God who fed his people in the wilderness. He's divine. He's God come to us in human flesh. This is part of what Jesus has been revealing to his disciples over the last few chapters. Over the last few years, really, for them. And yet, they just don't get it. It's almost as if they weren't there a few chapters ago. How can one feed this people here in this desolate place? But he doesn't address their dullness yet. Instead, he responds, just as he did back in chapter 6, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. He's involving them just as he did then, and just as he did in Mark 6, he has everybody sit down on the ground. And then there's more similarities. We see a familiar act, not just because Jesus did it back in Mark 6, but because we actually do it every week here. Jesus takes bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, and he gives it. Those are the same four verbs in Mark 6, and the same four verbs in the tradition given to us in the Lord's Supper. He took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. Undoubtedly, Mark's original audience would have seen so plainly the Lord's Supper here. And in this, Mark is showing us something something about who Jesus is and what he's come to do for his people. He's the one who took on a body in the incarnation. He's the one who, who gave his body to be broken for us in the crucifixion. He's, and in so doing, he's given to us as his people so that we might be saved and satisfied in him. He's not just God who who provides bread for his people in desolate places. He is the bread come down from heaven for us. This is a clear demonstration of what Jesus says himself in 
in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever comes to Jesus will be finally, truly, ultimately, eternally satisfied in him. He feeds these with bread here to demonstrate that greater, fuller reality regarding who he is for us. Not only bread, but a few small fish. This might be an unimportant detail, but it seems like these are actually sardines. I read a little bit this last week about it's a different word for fish than in Mark 6, and apparently it means like small fish, particularly small fish, and sardines were popular in this region. So it might have been sardines. Um, not, it's not particularly relevant, but what is relevant is verse 8. They ate and were satisfied. There was enough for everyone, not one person. No one walked away from Jesus still hungry here. In fact, it wasn't just enough. It was more than enough. See here, they, 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 they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people. Now here's a place where the story diverges some from Mark 6. Mark 6, Jesus fed 5,000 Jewish men. He was in the Jewish region then. And Mark told us in Mark 6.44 that he specifically fed men. But here, Jesus is in a largely Gentile region, feeding, we can safely assume, Gentiles. And feeding not only men, but but people, which most assuredly includes women and children. This is significant. This is significant because this is one more way that Jesus is revealing himself to his disciples as the promised Messiah. How so? Well, it was a well-established biblical promise that when the Messiah came, He would not only be the Messiah for Israel, but he would be a light to the nations. He would be Messiah to the Gentiles, to us as well. Isaiah 49, 6, God the Father makes this promise to God the Son. He says to his Son, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Jesus is trying to show his disciples here who he is, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Son of God. And specifically here, he's showing him his identity as such by showing them that he's bringing the Gentiles to the table like never before. He's showing them, I am the Messiah, I am the Savior, I am the promised one of God. This is made clear through the signs that he's giving. Then he sends the crowd away, and his disciples get into their boat, and they head back across the Sea of Galilee to the district of Dalmanutha, which is the same region known as uh, Magdala, as it's recorded in Matthew's Gospel, which means that he's back in a predominantly Jewish area in Galilee, And when there, in the next scene of our text, we see that Christ, while continually revealing who he is, is continually met by unbelief in Israel, particularly among its leaders, a certain subset of leaders. Verse 11 says that the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, don't don't misunderstand what they're doing here. They're not coming to him in good faith with sincere questions. 
desiring to believe but struggling against doubt and just feeling that they need some sort of confirmation to bolster their faith, to nudge them into the realm of belief. Now, remember the Pharisees, they had already made up their mind about him. Remember back in Mark 3, they've already seen signs from him. They've already seen miracles. They've already seen him heal bodies and cast out demons. And what was the claim they made? He does it all by the power of the devil. And they settled into hard-hearted unbelief and rejection of Jesus. This is not sincere. And Mark's language here communicates that. They they came to argue with him, it says, to, to contend with him. And all to seek a sign from him in order to test him. That word translated as test, there's the same word used for Satan's temptation of Jesus back in Mark 1. They're not seeking some sort of confirmation from him so that they might believe in him. They're trying to tempt him or trap him here. And Jesus sees through their question. He mourns over their blindness. His compassionate heart is even seen in his response to the Pharisees. He mourns over their blindness. It says in verse 12 that he sighed deeply. (sighs) The ruin of these men's souls weighed heavily on his heart. He wasn't indifferent to them. No, he looked upon them. He was saddened by their blindness and unbelief. And he responded with heartbreak in his voice, saying, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Do you understand that that unbelief cannot be remedied by merely giving proofs? Because unbelief is not primarily an intellectual problem. It's primarily a problem of the heart. If someone does not believe in what has been clearly revealed in the Word of God concerning Jesus Christ, it's not because the Word of God is intellectually wanting. It's not because there's too little proof. It's because, as Paul says in Romans 1.18, People suppress truth by their unrighteousness. People, we we love in our natural state our sin and idolatry, and thus we in our natural state don't want to believe in what is clearly true. And that's what we see in the Pharisees here. The truth is plainly before them and has been all along, but they suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. That's why Jesus says in Luke 16.31 that if someone does not believe based on what is revealed in Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If someone rejects the testimony of Holy Scripture in their unbelief, you won't change their mind by giving them a sign or giving them a proof, even by giving the sign of all signs, someone rising from the dead. Jesus has already done in Mark's gospel. He raised Jairus' daughter. And if ever there was a sign, That was the one. And yet men in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so Jesus refuses to give the sign they're looking for. It will do no good anyways. Instead, verse 13, he left them. He got into the boat again and went to the other side. He simply leaves them and gives them over to their unbelief. Which brings us to the third scene here. And it starts by telling us that the disciples had forgotten to bring bread. They had only one loaf between the 13 of them. That would not be enough. 
And this comes up because Jesus told his disciples, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now this is emphatic. He begins this warning with two words, which are synonyms, calling his disciples to be alert, to be warned. He says, watch out and beware. And what are they to watch out? Be warned and alert concerning the leaven of Pharisees and of Herod. Now, you know that that leaven is a substance, like, like yeast. You work into a lump of dough. That causes it to lighten and soften and rise. And leaven is, is an interesting substance, substance because it's, it's so small. It's so seemingly insignificant, and yet, when it gets into a lump of dough, it's so pervasive, and it permeates so quickly and so much, it expands throughout the entirety of the lump. And what is so seemingly small makes such a large difference. And so Jesus is warning his disciples here against something that is so insidious and yet so pervasive. And what is that? What is it which can be so insidious and yet so pervasive? It's, it's the influence and the disposition of Pharisees and of Herod. And one in particular. What, what, what is it about the Pharisees and Herod in particular that the disciples should be on guard against? Well, contextually, it must be their, their hard-hearted disbelief and opposition toward Jesus. We just saw in the scene before this, and in the chapter before this one, that the Pharisees are, are characterized by this hard-hearted disbelief and rejection of Jesus, aren't they? Or furthermore, any time that the Pharisees and Herod are mentioned in the same scene in Mark, in the same sentence, it has to do with their conspiratorial opposition to Jesus. Mark 3, 6. The Pharisees and the Herodians held counsel against Jesus on how to destroy him. Mark 12, 13, the Pharisees and the Herodians come to Jesus to try to trap him in his talk. They're seeking to destroy Jesus. And, and Jesus is warning to, to his disciples because these, these groups are trying to plant seeds of doubt and unbelief among Jesus' disciples and among the crowds with their clever tests and traps for Jesus. He's warning his disciples. They're, they're trying to get others to disbelieve, to doubt, to oppose Jesus. They're trying to confuse people regarding who Jesus is, all the while Jesus is seeking to reveal himself to his disciples and to give them understanding regarding himself. And so he warns them about this leaven. Don't let these little tricks and traps of the Pharisees trip you up. Be alert against unbelief. But the disciples, so dull and hard-hearted themselves, they, they completely miss the point. They hear the word leaven, and all they can think about is bread. Verse 16, they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Jesus is concerned about their faith, about eternal life, about their souls, and they can think of nothing but breakfast. seems Jesus' warning them was altogether appropriate and necessary and timely. And their hearts ought to have been overwhelmed with awe at the fact that true bread has come down from heaven for them. They were anxious and preoccupied with the lack of loaves. They thought Jesus was chiding them about the fact that they forgot to bring more bread. How hard-hearted and like the Pharisees they actually were. 
So Jesus, with perfect patience and care, began to pastor these fools by asking them a series of questions meant to to help them understand what he was saying. He asked eight questions. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves or the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said, do you not yet understand? He graciously uses the content of their conversation to show them their spiritual condition. How can you be anxious about bread when you've seen me feed over 9,000 people with 12 loaves, leaving 19 baskets full of food left over? Haven't you seen my compassionate care? Haven't you seen my magnificent miracles and matchless mercy so clearly already? Don't you know who I am yet? Why are you anxious about this? Do you not remember? Do you not understand? Now, it'd be easy for us to look at the disciples here and simply be baffled by their ignorance, blindness, and dullness. Friends, I must confess, as I've looked at this text, I feel like I've been looking into a mirror. How many times has God proven his faithfulness to me and his kind providences, his gracious provisions, and his spirit-enlightened illumination of his word, and I've gone on to be dull, blind, hard-hearted, and forgetful. How many times have have I preached sermons to you up here? telling you to believe things revealed in the Word of God that I myself have gone on to forget. So I began my preparation this week scoffing at the ignorance of these guys, but I clearly see I'm numbered in their midst. I see my face among them. I hear my voice asking the same questions. Christian, I I think it's safe to say that that's all of us at times. They're not unique in their proclivity to dullness. And thus Jesus' warnings about dullness and disbelief here beckon us to watch out as well. First, he calls us to watch out for dullness of understanding. Watch out. Sometimes we can have been taught so much for so long and yet still understand so little. The disciples have been taught much. Christ. Verbal communication has been clear. He's confirmed what he's taught with his miraculous miracles. And, and, and they had the preaching of Jesus. They had the living parables of his miracles. And yet they, they understood so little. And this is a problem we find among the people of God throughout Scripture. You, find, you certainly see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. I thought about Paul's epistle to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul. He had gone to Galatia and he had preached Christ to them. And in fact, his preaching had been so clear, so powerful, so illuminating. It was so clear that he could say in Galatians 3.1, it was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. The preaching was so clear. And yet, why is Paul writing this letter? Galatians 1.6, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. 
They'd been taught so much so well, but they understood so little. Also, think of 1 Corinthians. Paul's favorite question, Dandy knows, favorite question in 1 Corinthians, he asks it 10 times. Do you not know? <laughs> Do you not know 1 Corinthians 3.16? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 5.6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know? That a little leaven leavens the whole lump. 6-2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by, we, by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? And on he goes, confronting their ignorance after they had been taught so well because they understood so little. Do you not know, he says to them. In the epistle to the Hebrews, Hebrews 5-12. The writer confronts the people. He says, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. You've been taught well for so long, he says, but you understand so little. This is a danger for us that we must be aware of. The disciples were not unique in their dullness. We can all be so amazingly, incredibly dull and understand so little after being taught so much. Perhaps that's often because we're, we're distracted by so many things with entertainments and creature comforts and, and all the distractions of our day and age. Perhaps we're overly preoccupied with them. We're called as God's people, Acts 2.42, to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to be devoted to the Word of God, to understanding it, to knowing it, to memorizing it, to studying it, to meditating on it, to applying it to our lives. We're called to be devoted to that in an ongoing way throughout the entirety of our lives. And some of you, some of you guys have grown up in church. You've been followers of Christ for years and years is your spiritual maturity and measure of understanding commensurate with that reality? Some of you, for how long you've been following Jesus? You, as the author of Hebrews says, you should be elder and deacon material by now. Are you? If not, watch out. Because this dullness of understanding is not merely a matter of intellectual capability. It's often rooted, as we've seen the words of Jesus here, in hard-heartedness. Next, watch out for drifting into hard-heartedness. This issue for the disciples here was not that they had inadequate teaching. It was not that something was lacking in Christ's instruction. It was not that Jesus was being unclear. It was that their hearts were hard. It's implied by Jesus' questions. Their hard hearts and blind ears and deaf ears. Blind eyes and deaf ears. Part of the warning for us here then is, is, is this insidious and pervasive nature of unbelief and hard-heartedness. The leaven. We, we, we so easily drift into hard-heartedness and unbelief. It's, it's insidious. And in contrast, no one just drifts into Christian growth and maturity and understanding. We drift into hard-heartedness and unbelief. Uh, D.A. Carson, he once rightly wrote that people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. 
We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. That's what we drift into apart from grace-driven effort. If you're counting on just easily sliding into Christian maturity and understanding and avoiding unbelief and hard-heartedness, think again. A hard heart and unbelief will come upon you like a thief in the night. It's for good reason that the author of Hebrews alerts us to this. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you see? Do you see? It can be so deceitful, so insidious. So much so that the author of Hebrews says, you need other people in your life. You won't see it yourself. You need other people in your life to notice, to to exhort you, to correct you. You need people in your life that are willing to give you a call and say, we need to talk. Perhaps we should say that, that one of the best ways we can watch out for drifting into hard heart is without our even realizing it, is to be in close, accountable Christian community in your local church. This is why, partly why, simply attending a church for the preaching of the word is simply not enough. You can come here, and I know my limitations. I know I'm not the best preacher. I'm not claiming that I am. But, but say I was. You could come here and listen to the best preaching week in and week out. But if you never joined as a member, you never asked for that kind of ability, you could very well be listening to the best preaching ever, like the disciples were here. All the while having your heart hardened without even realizing it. Because you didn't entrust yourself to others and let them speak into your life and hold you accountable. This is one way you must watch out for hard-heartedness and the deceitfulness of sin gripping your heart, so insidiously permeating your soul. Watch out for hard-heartedness. Watch out for distractions with temporal things. Perhaps we should say with just being overly concerned with temporal things. The disciples' hard hearts led them to be so concerned about bread When Jesus started talking to them about their unbelief, about things eternal, things spiritual, things salvific. When he was talking about the state of their own souls, they thought he was talking about breakfast. Is your heart like theirs overly concerned with temporal things? Social media, clothing, phones, entertainment. Even things that are not superfluous, but necessary and essential in life. You know, bread was an essential part of life for these guys. It wasn't peripheral. It wasn't unimportant. Jesus, earlier in the feeding of the 4,000, he was concerned that this crowd was fed. He cares about this crowd being fed. It's not that food and being fed is unimportant, but, but you can still be overly concerned with important but temporal things. 
groceries, family, jobs, paychecks, exercise. These are important things. But they're not eternal or ultimate things, and so you should give proper attention to them. All the while prioritizing what is eternal and ultimate this is so difficult for us. This is so difficult in America. We, we take in being overly concerned with temporal things with our mother's milk. It's so hard for me to see this in myself. It's so hard for us to see this in ourselves. Good question to ask. Some good questions to ask maybe. To try to discern what you truly value and what you're truly concerned with in life is to ask yourself a couple of questions. First, when you have space to think, What is your mind drawn to? When you have time for your mind to just wander, where does it wander to? Does it wander to Christ and his gospel and the scriptures and the state of your own soul and God's providences in your life? Or does it instead primarily wander to dinner, job, family, clothing, social media, entertainment, Also ask yourself, when you talk with others, what are you prone to talk about? Where does your your conversation naturally naturally drift to? Are your conversations with others just naturally and typically flowing toward TV shows or what's going on in the social media world or your politics or your job or your family? If those temporal things are what dominate your conversation, and I'm not saying don't think about those things or don't talk about them, but the unregenerate are still concerned about those things. And if they are what dominate your thought life and your conversation, well, you are likely overly concerned with temporal things like the unregenerate. Consider what you do with your your schedule, your calendar, your free time. Do Do you find it hard to make time to read your Bible and to pray and to keep up spiritual friendships and to make it to worship week in and week out while also finding it easy to watch a football game for four hours? Or to keep up your story on Instagram, or to check Facebook every day, or to watch Netflix every night. And again, I'm not saying it's wrong to do those things. But do you find it easy to keep up with all that while also finding it difficult to make time to pray and read your Bible and fellowship with God's people? Watch out for being distracted and overly concerned with temporal things. And lastly, remember Christ's devotion to you. One of my favorite things about this passage is that it shows Jesus' enduring patience with his own, doesn't it? He's faithful to his disciples. He's devoted them. He's been with them for a few years now, and they still don't understand. They're dull, blind, deaf, hard-hearted, and yet, even still, notice he doesn't leave them. He left the Pharisees. It doesn't leave his own. And that should stand out to us because even while the disciples are are so seemingly showing signs of such dullness and unbelief, notice Jesus' response to them in contrast with that to the Pharisees. He left the Pharisees, but he stays with his own. He patiently sticks with them. He graciously and pastorally confronts them in their dullness and disbelief. But he remains with them and he doesn't leave them. So often in the Christian life, we can be tempted to think that after we struggle with the same sin for years, 
when after years of being taught and we're still ignorant, when we've hardened our hearts to His Word and the convicting work of His Spirit again and again, and when we've again and again shown that we care more for temporal than eternal things, sometimes we can be tempted to think, well, He's got to be done with me now. Surely I've drained the reservoir of His patience bone dry by now. But that's not who Jesus is. He is enduringly patient. He is unwaveringly faithful. He is unrelentedly, unrelentingly devoted to his people. And his patience with his own is like a stream just overflowing from his abundant heart. He will never, Hebrews 3.5, grow so tired of us that he leaves us or forsakes us. He never leaves or forsakes his own. He was faithful to the, the disciples here, and he is with us today because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because of that, our, our dullness is no match for his devotion to us. Those stubborn vestiges of unbelief in our hearts don't change his devotion to us. Our fickleness is no match for his faithfulness to us. He doesn't leave. And we not only have the example of this passage to show us that, we have even more what the end of Mark shows us. The knowledge that even while he full well knew our ignorance, our sin, our depravity, our dullness, our disbelief, what would become of our sloth in the Christian race, our slowness to grow and understand and mature, knowing all of that, knowing all of our sin and unbelief, past, present, and future, he loved us still. He still came. He still gave himself on that cross, taking upon himself all of our sins and corruption, all of our depravity and unbelief. He took it all upon himself, and if he did all that, if he suffered, if he was tortured, if he was crucified for us, knowing full well how messed up, how ignorant, how dull, how depraved we are, then we can rest assured that he won't give up on us now. He's already gone all in on us, and he's not turning back now. He's as committed now as he was then when he gave himself on that cross for us. And so he's bearing with us patiently. He's unwaveringly faithful to us. He is devoted to you, Christian, even when you're not devoted to him. And what's more is that he's devoted to not just sticking with you. He's devoted to growing you, to changing you, to, to, to giving you understanding. He's more devoted to this than you are. He's committed to progressively changing your heart and drawing your attention more and more to his excellence and beauty and more and more to things eternal and salvific, things ultimate, and to helping you become less and less distracted by the temporal. Maybe he's using the sermon right now to do that. Maybe. I hope he is. Because he cares for you, he does these things. He calls us to watch out for dullness of understanding, to watch out for drifting into hard-heartedness without even realizing it, to watch out for distraction and being overly concerned with temporal things. There are real dangers and threats that we ought to be alert to. We ought to, to take into our hearts and work out our own salvation with fear and trembling to commit to this watchfulness that's necessary for following Jesus. But to watch out all the while also recognizing that our Jesus is dedicated and devoted to carefully watching over us. 
He won't let us go. He never leaves us or forsakes us. He's with us. He's watching over us to the end. Rest in that. Let's pray together. Father, seal this word upon our hearts that we would take the warnings to heart and that we would take these comforts to heart. Help us to remember that Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. Confirm that to us now as we come to the table to partake of the bread and the cup, to remember what Christ has done for us, to feast upon his flesh and blood, and to be reminded of the hope of eternal life coming at the end of the age, knowing full well that he will get us there by his strength, his devotion. His kindness, His grace, His compassion toward us. Confirm all that to our hearts right now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.